I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. My guest today is Ms. Deborah Khan, founder of beingpatient.com. Being Patient is an independent news source covering Alzheimer's disease research and care. The site aims to bridge the science community and people who are impacted by Alzheimer's disease. Deborah, thank you for joining me on Dementia Matters. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to, to have you on today and, and really be able to continue our conversation um, from when you asked me to be on um, being patients. And so I'd like to start by asking a general question of what inspired you to leave your career in journalism and launch this online resource for people impacted by Alzheimer's disease? Thanks so much, Nathaniel, for asking that. Um, it really wasn't um, a planned um, mission of mine, um, but something I stumbled upon. Um, while I was at the Wall Street Journal, um, I received news from my sister that my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, you always have your suspicion something might be a little bit wrong, but you're hoping it's normal aging. Um, but once you get that diagnosis, um, it really impacts your family. And, you know, I did what most people do, which is I turned to Google and I started to Google Alzheimer's disease and um, I was at work and I found information flying at me, um, much of it contradictory. I didn't know who to believe. And, you know, I'm, I'm my dad's a geneticist at UCSF, so the scientific world is very familiar to me. Um, but I wanted to know answers to questions like, what have we learned in the last 10 years um, in research? How far away are we from a cure to Alzheimer's disease? Um, and I couldn't find that information really presented to me anywhere. Uh, you know, there's great sites, of course, that will talk about care, um, but no one was really explaining the science to the non-scientific population, um, such as myself. So I did um, what I knowed how to do, which is I started to call researchers around the world. Um, and I think in the end, I talked to about 25 of them um, uh, with full disclosure that I was on this my own mission to understand more for my family. And I found I learned copious amounts of information that wasn't out there. And I thought, this is a real grave um, injustice to the world. Like, why aren't, don't people access this information? Why don't they have access to this information? So um, I did actually what a lot of people, what surprised a lot of people. Um, I was really drawn, um, believing it would take a journalist skill to provide better information for people. Um, so I resigned from my job at uh, the Wall Street Journal. And um, I have to say, it was the first time in my life I really left a job on a on a high. I loved my job. It was it was a great job, um, but I felt like I could use my skills uh, to really help people who are facing um, dementia and Alzheimer's or or long term illness for that fact. Um, because if you are if if you deal with a disease like dementia, you know you're you're easily investing about a decade of your life um, into looking for better information. So to me, it felt like really the right thing to do. And we're grateful you're doing it because this has been quite impactful and successful in what you're doing. And I do think it's interesting and important to note that you are really at this intersection of 
your profession in journalism, and in essence, a, an expert in communication, but then also this personal experience. Like this, this is something that is quite meaningful to you and important to get out. And so I can see and, and, and hear it in your voice, you know, what motivates you. And I'm just so grateful uh, that you're doing it. And I wanted to let uh, our listeners know. So your website is comprehensive. It really covers news, advice for caregivers, and then brain health information. So how do you decide on the topics that you cover and how you cover them? Well, you know, it was really interesting, um, Nathaniel, because what at first we thought we were going to just only cover the disease state, but then I realized a lot of people who we're communicating with are like myself, right? I'm, uh, I have a mom with Alzheimer's disease and that's the turning point where you suddenly sit up and say, I want to take care of my brain. I don't ever want this terrible disease. What can I do? And, you know, Part of it was my fascination. I, I remember I um, one of the first people I spoke to was Dr. Michael Weiner of UCSF, and he at, he's at uh, UCSF Veterans, and he had um, conducted a 15 year or so brain, um, brain scan um, study where they looked at you know thousands of scans of people's brains, and that was actually a turning point for research in which. Uh, we realized that the beta amyloid plaques, the plaques that are one of the first hallmarks of this disease, appear in your brain decades before you ever see a symptom. So to me, um, you know, what I've been fascinated with is how much um, research is sprouting up from discoveries like Michael Weiner's um, to understand what we can do to really improve our brain health. And so I decided that we should talk to, to, to both sides of the equation, not only the disease state, but what is research telling us about making our brains healthier? How do we, you know, I mean, if we are on the road to Alzheimer's disease, what do we do to kick that can down the road? And um, I felt, you know, both topics were incredibly relevant. But in, ter um, in, in terms of the topics and how we splice them up, I, I'll just say this. Um, you know, I realized quickly there was an information problem with explaining the science. So that was easy to tick off. But what we found, too, was there was a connectivity problem. Patients and caregivers really stick to one another and stick together trading advice. A lot of them are mad at their primary care doctors because they're not getting the information that they need to cope with this disease. And interestingly enough, researchers felt like they didn't have access to a bigger patient population or um, caregivers who are at the front lines of this disease. So, you know, through all of these needs, we said, how do we create a better formula? And that's really how we decided how we would splice and dice the information and create the content. And you reach people in different mediums. It's not simply an interview or an article. I mean, you are really trying to get information into people's hands any way you can. Absolutely. And one of the things, one of the big pain points was um, uh, the patient and caregiver population didn't feel like they had access to experts, right? So it wasn't easy just to call someone up and say, hey, my mom is experiencing terrible hallucination. Now what's next? You know, it usually was like a six month duration of, uh, of a doctor's appointment. And there was no connectivity. How do we deal and manage with symptoms of dementia to make our uh, this just a better experience? And so 
Um, the live talk component was really important to me. You know, instead of just answering my questions, I wanted to give people the opportunity to access experts such as yourself um, and have them ask what questions they needed answers to. So, you know, we're very multimedia. Um, we do live talks. Uh, one of the things I'm most proud of is our patient perspectives. We have being patient perspectives, which is our interviews with um patients, people who have been diagnosed with dementia. And we ask questions like, well, when did you, in hindsight, when did you first notice something was wrong? You know, it's not, I got terribly lost. I couldn't remember coming home from the store. It's before that, you know, they were, a lot of them um, were in very demanding jobs and there were little signs, you know, many years prior to any type of memory loss. So there's great things that we're seeing and insights we're getting from the patient perspective. And I'm hugely grateful to our patient population because I believe that they can unlock a lot of the key, you know, a lot of the mystery behind Alzheimer's disease as well, as well as the caregivers for that matter. And, and in that vein, being patient really isn't just a source for news. Like you've said, you've, you've, you have multiple different routes of discussion and you've really built a community through social media. So can you talk about the power of connection uh, that social media provides? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the angst about um, going through, and you know, it's 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 funny because my sister and I often joke that you know I've provided this resource for people, but when we look at our own family, the problems are just as difficult, right? <laughs> like, you know, you like to sit, think that you know more or something, but we don't, you know. And um, part of the angst of of going through the dementia journey is kind of your needs change and, you know, you run into um, uh, different problems at different times. And depending on the person who's been diagnosed, they, they come, you know, at different times and they kind of knock you off, you know, your chair and you think, what, what, what do we do now? So um, social media is a great way for us to be able to engage with people, but also for them to just reach out and say, you know, hey, does anyone know the answer to this question? Or, um, you know, what what is it? You know, we really keep our ear to the ground to understand what are the questions coming up the most from people. We call it a community-driven model um, as opposed to a typical editorial mo model where we're like, we think you should know about this. We are always talking to caregivers, patients, understanding where the need is for better information and how we can address those needs. So social media, again, just keeps us really in contact and, um, and, and, you know, and it's interesting to see you say community. Absolutely. That's what we are. I mean, we started as a news and information source and now we are very much a community because what we're seeing is people are turning to us to get them the answers or they're saying, Hey, I've noticed this. Has anyone else experienced it? And it becomes a very relevant topic of discussion for us um, at Being Patient. And you're present not only on Facebook, but Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. I mean, you are really in a lot of different places. And I'm wondering, have you found greater success in a particular medium or what videos versus articles versus your live talks? Do you think that you're reaching people in a, uh, in a more effective way with one versus the other? Well, you know, social media is easy because especially on health, uh, people congregate, right? And so, um, you know, 
people tend to use Facebook, I think, the most to congregate in in um, health groups. Um, but, you know, today's media world, you have to be pervasive and you really have to. That's why we have podcasts. We have videos. We have live videos. We have you, a YouTube channel. You know, um, we were piloting um, the uh, being patient social, um, uh, the being patient support network, which is we're um, testing it on Slack. Um, for those of you who don't know what Slack is, it's just kind of an interface of instant messaging that you can communicate and share on. Um, we, we do Zoom calls. We had our first um, uh, support Zoom call because one of the things that occurred to me too is you know, COVID has been so terrible for people with dementia, not only people diagnosed, but for families, it's so isolating. And so, you know, what we we heard from our community is depression rates are soaring. Um, people are just really depressed and isolated. It's making um, people diagnosed with dementia worse in our community. So we said, how can we, you know, we can't, we can't call together live groups right now, but we certainly have the ability to connect people um, through uh, the internet. So we've been doing small focus groups on um, just really what people want to talk about. And, you know, it's amazing what's coming out of these groups, actually, and also helping me, um, giving me insights into better editorial. So I very much look at this as a circular model. It's not a one-way exchange. It's it's basically, you know, I want to, we want to go, being patient, our reporters, our editorial team, we want to get to know the community really well so that we can generate content that helps the community. And as you engage with the community, you know, what have you learned from the people, particularly people with symptoms and the caregivers or family members, what have you learned from them through your interactions with the website, the social media, and these many different channels that you have? We have learned so much. And actually, one of the things that I'm currently working with, with um, Jane Roscombe, who is a data neuroscientist, is um, how do we articulate patient and caregiver insights into structured uh, data for research. Because I believe better communication will only help with finding a cure to this disease. And, you know, everything from um, lucidity, let's just take lucidity as one example. You know, um, I have a dear friend, um, Yaskia Kotterman, who wrote a piece. It's one of our most highly trafficked articles. Um, and it's called What I Wish I Knew Before My Mother's Alzheimer's Death. Yaskia and I were good friends and her mom was further down um, um, the disease. Um, she, she was, uh, you know, ahead of my mom in terms of the progression of the disease. So we would meet once in a while and we'd have coffee and just talk and compare notes. And when her mom passed away, you know, we had a four hour teary conversation and she said, you know, I wish so much. And I looked long and hard for the information about that would prepare me for my mother's death, but I couldn't find it anywhere. And one of the things that she notes is, you know, her mom was in a care facility in Holland. Her mom was a concert pianist and they knew things were coming to an end when her mom stopped playing the piano because up until the very end, she could play, you know, like she ha had always played. Like we know music is so strong, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't escape memory easily. So the family returned to Holland and they were all around the mom's bed. And 
they, you know, she stopped eating, she was getting sores on her body. And, um, you know, the, at that point, hospice is in the room and her mom suddenly, you know, wasn't recognizing any of them was kind of in pretty much a comatose state. She sat up one day, started eating again and was recognizing the family and interacting with the family. The doctor came and said, Oh, well, I guess this isn't the end. Three days later, Yaska's mom died. And, but it, poses the very important question about neurodegeneration. And I've seen it with my mom, my own mom. You know, some days she's great. Other days we're like, oh my God, she's really progressing. What is it about the progression of of the biological progression of neurodegeneration that allows people these moments of lucidity during the course of the disease up to the very end. To me, that's fascinating. But what's even more fascinating, we published this article. We had numerous conversations. Yaskia came on and was a live discussion. We were flooded with comments about how this happened to other people. That's exactly what happened to my own mom. And you know, the end of life is not particularly a stage that most doctors or researchers are paying attention to, right? And, but I I believe, I mean, and that's only one example, quite frankly, there are so many examples of insights we're gaining from, you know, I talked about it before, when you first, it's really interesting to ask people diagnosed with MCI or dementia, when did you first notice something in hindsight, right? That's the key in hindsight. When did you first notice something was wrong? Well, the answers are starting to take on patterns. You know, a lot of the people, especially the early onset folks, they're in really high um, demanding jobs, high pressure jobs, very capable, very smart people. And they talk about either an ADD type of sim- symptom. I couldn't hold my attention the way I, I used to, or they didn't realize something was wrong, but someone at work noted they weren't as productive in one shape or form as they used to be, right? So all of these nuggets are incredible insights. And so Jane and I believe, Jane is the neuroscientist, I'm the journalist. Together, we believe that this is valid information. And again, we're looking at creating that circular model how do we wake science up to these very interesting points? I mean, think about that. Is anyone looking at neurodegeneration right now as something that maybe can be better on some days and worse on others? Maybe, but I think more people need to know, and we need to talk to the caregivers. We need to understand this more, you know? And um, and then also, how do we use these data points that patients and caregivers are giving us to feed it back to the population of patients and caregivers for better treatment and, and just living a better life with dementia? It's a very powerful story and a, and a good anecdote too, Deborah. And, and I feel like it speaks to really how complex the mind is, the brain is, and, and, and our missing understandings of neurodegeneration. But I, I feel what you're saying that it's stories that, that are generated through these kinds of reports that lead to questions that really need to be scientifically studied. And, and, and you're part of that process when you share information and you have a, a platform like being patient. Um, and so, you know, it makes me then lead to this question of, well, some of these online platforms may not be as reliable or trustworthy, and it can be difficult, like you've said in the past, for people to find reputable online sources for health information when you went for your own 
uh, search. So can you offer our listeners some tips that they could use to help find uh, reputable health information, how to know that something is truly helpful versus um, not? Just subscribe to being patient. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but no, and I'm actually not kidding because I'll tell you why. One of the problems I found with health information is people producing content have an agenda usually. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative sense. There's a lot of great NGOs out there and everyone, but you know, you might get the information and then you they're asking for money or something, you know. And so I felt like you know, what if we apply a journalistic model to health, right? And what was missing is, you know, I get it. My dad, you know, who is a brilliant geneticist, he, um, when he would, I always tell people this story, but when he would help me with my science homework uh, when I was a kid, sometimes I would leave the room crying. I'd be more confused when I entered because his level of knowledge is so much higher than I could ever obtain or achieve, right? He's, He's a geneticist. And so I get that, you know, and I think this is one of the problems that doctors have is, you know, not everyone can communicate to uh, the layperson because they don't understand a lot of the language that's being used. And so, you know, it's funny because uh, when I was first starting being patient, a lot of people suggested I get some medical students in and not that medical students aren't great and knowledgeable and stuff, but I said, no, not right now. I mean, there are great reasons to have medical students involved. But what I really need is journalists. I need journalists who can talk to people and make them understand complex, um, you know, ideas and complex information. I think also you need to look at why, who's producing it and why. I think that's important, right? I mean, being patient exists just to give people better information. We don't have, we're not funding research, you know, we're not, um, we don't have any other agenda, but just to give people better information. Um, But, you know, also you need to look at the sources that are being quoted, you know, and it's confusing. It's really, really confusing. And, you know, I'm, I am actually, you know, when you take a lot of the lifestyle issues, like, so for example, um, you know, I love diving into the lifestyle and in some of the topics science isn't particularly focused on. So you're not going to find a lot of peer reviewed, um, you know, IRB reviewed um, published studies on certain lifestyle things. But what I do is I look at where the science or where, where they're coming from. I mean, so Sarah Lazard has wonderful research on meditation in the brain, right? That really makes me understand the science behind meditation. So I think people should just dig and understand where the information is coming from. If it's attached to an organization that is trying to fund something or is, you know, not that it's not true information. It's just, you really got to understand the source and, and where people, why people are producing content. Um, and you know, that's usually my guiding light. And then I dig into the, the, the resources, like who are they quoting and where do they come from? You know, and, um, Really, I mean, I, I always say this, there's a lot of contradictions in research and we're never going to take the contradictions out of research. But what Being Patient is doing is we're building the landscape. We're giving people a better resource to understand comparisons and what's out there so that they can make a more informed decision. And you've hinted to this before, and some of that answer actually fits this next question, which is really, you know, you know, why is it so important for scientists to have a separate organization like Being Patient 
translate and discuss and question even the work that's being done. Because if you, when we analyzed fundamentally what the problems were, um, one of them is not enough people are going into clinical trials. Part of that is a geographic, you know, part of it is the requirements of a study. But I also argue part of it is a lot of people don't understand the science. So why would you be motivated to participate in the science if you truly don't understand it? You know, um, there are, I mean, for example, um, there are a lot of, you know, there are quite a few immunotherapies that are in phase three trials right now. And we constantly do research within our community. We come out with explainers on what is an immunotherapy and how does it relate, you know, why is it being tried on neurodegeneration? We, but first and foremost, we go to our community and we ask people, what do you understand? What do you know about immunotherapy? What do you understand? And usually the answer is, I have no idea, you know? And so if you are, <laughs> if you are somebody who wants to participate in a clinical trial, why would you put your hand up if you don't really understand what the medication is doing or what it's aiming for, right? So it presents longer-term problems. If we're not getting enough people into clinical trials, uh, I believe, you know, we're that's going to that's going to delay finding the cure to Alzheimer's or or solving the mystery behind Alzheimer's um, a lot by by a long shot. Whereas if more people are willing to participate in the science, that's wonderful. And how are we going to get them to do that? We have to explain it to them, you know? And it's funny because a lot of the researchers who I talk to, they totally get what I'm trying to do. And they're saying, this is so badly needed. But a lot of them say, we can't do this, but you can, you know? And so actually, I mean, I should turn the question on to you. Like, I guess it's just because, you know, if you're a researcher, you're focused on one aspect of science, right? You're not looking at the whole picture. So somebody needs to put the pieces together for um, for people impacted by the disease so that they have a better understanding. I like that answer, Deborah. And it's important because we do need more people in clinical trials. We need more diverse populations in trials. And, and so you're right. We have to explain um, and of course, journalists, though, being the experts in communication, it makes sense that they would be a key piece of that. Yeah, it's also taking the stigma out of dementia. A lot of it is, you know, it's funny because you get, you'll hear, oh, my my mom or dad, a lot of my friends say, oh, was di diagnosed with M MCI. And, you know, it while MCI is not a diagnosis anyone wants, it's kind of like they have a sigh of relief. It's not Alzheimer's, right? But you kind of know when you get an MCI diagnosis, you're heading towards that direction. But, you know, part of what we are trying to do at Being Patient is making people understand what are the coping skills to living with dementia, but not just living, surviving dementia. It's more living joyfully, you know, and we have people in our um, patient population, in our community who do just that. And we learn from them about how, you know, really to, to live, a, a, you know, live life happily. It doesn't mean that your life has to be over, you know, it, it, it's framed too much as a death sentence, but you can have a decade of good living before you really slip into, to, to serious, you know, um, neurodegenerative state that, that impairs your lifestyle. So, you know, I think that's an important point to stress as well. 
And you've covered a lot of different topics within Alzheimer's disease and research. So this might be a bit hard, but I'm hoping you could share with our listeners just some of the topics that you think in particular have been the most impactful and meaningful, perhaps to yourself or perhaps to a family member or caregiver. So I actually, I mean, from from a very selfish point of view, I've learned so much about brain health and people need to understand brain health more. Um, we don't think about it until it's too late. And, you know, a lot of research out there has proven we can do things to make our brains better and and more healthy. And, you know, we might not be able to cure Alzheimer's, but we can definitely prevent neurodegeneration from happening for a significant period of time. And, it's so important. I mean, the, the difficulty is when you when you lift weights, you see your muscles get better. You see your body is in better tone. When you do good things for your brain, you don't see anything, right? So it's hard to like invest that time when you're not seeing the difference. But, you know, what I've learned on this journey is, yes, there's so much you can do. So, you know, we interview scientists like Wendy Suzuki, who is at NYU and who, you know, has taken, she's taking exercise and the brain to the next level. We know now with research that if you do 30 to 35 minutes of aerobic exercise a day, you're actually adding gray matter to your hippocampus, the area of the brain responsible for money, um, memory rather, not money. so, so you're actually adding, um, you know, gray matter to your hippocampus. And so we are making memory better with aerobic exercise. So, I mean, when someone explains it to you that way, you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to get out and go for my run. But more importantly, what's fascinating to me is following the research. So Wendy, what Wendy's doing is she is taking, um, uh, different types of exercise, and she's analyzing how different exercise impacts different parts of the brain. So even that type of information makes it really helpful to us, you know, who want to live healthier lives. Another big topic for me, hormones and women, you know, when you reach a perimenopausal state, like get to know your hormones, because we know, we don't know, we know two thirds of um, people with Alzheimer's are are women. It disproportionately affects women than men. We used to think it was because women live longer, but we now know that's not the case. So, you know, a lot of um, researchers are looking into um, menopause and how menopause and the drop in estrogen relates to um, to memory and and whether how that sets you perhaps on the road to neurodegeneration. So there's a lot of information that's out there. The science is following it. And I think it's really important for us, even, you know, when you don't have Alzheimer's disease or you don't have dementia to pay attention to your brain health and understand what is it you can do today to make your brain better and healthier. Well, that was a perfect segue into my last question, which is always a personal one. Uh, really, what changes have you made in your own life in regards to brain health and disease prevention? Oh my God. If you talk to like my sister, she says I've gone kind of crazy, but um, well, I mean, I've always been a runner, so I didn't have to do the exercise thing. Running is, I mean, I, I've always felt like you know, when I was young, I had a bit of ADD and running was what I found helped me. And and that's a, another connection, right? It's like, 
I was very much um, ADD when I was young and I started to run and it transformed my school experience, my academic experience just by running every morning. Um, so that's a, a proven connection that, you know, it, it really does. And it's not, it's, it's not, um, hard to think because, you know, uh, the medicine that they give for ADD is, is synthetic endorphins. Right. And so when you're running, you're just getting the natural endorphins. So that's not really hard to figure out. Um, but I, I've taken up new things. I, I started to play the piano. I hadn't touched the piano since I was probably like 10 or 11 years old. And, you know, to the remorse of my family, I now play the piano, not well, but I love it. I mean, it's amazing. Oh, and, um, Talk about understanding neuroplasticity. Okay, so I was, I, when I took piano up again, probably now four years ago or so, three or four years ago, I noticed I'm right-handed. So I noticed I had to focus on my left hand the entire time. My, my right hand needed less of my brain's attention. The more I played, the more I saw I was able to look at a sheet of music and both hands were able to operate at the same time. When I first started playing piano, that was impossible. I had to pay attention to my left hand the entire time. So that's neuroplasticity. I'm making the neurons in my brain move in different patterns and they're strengthening, you know, that ability. I mean, you know, you probably don't want to hear me play piano because I don't play it very well, but that's what neuroplasticity is. It's that I felt that, you know, oh, I, I woke up one day and I was like, wow, I'm not paying attention to my left hand anymore. They're both going simultaneously. You know, that's really helping a lot. Um, I also really try to get better sleep. I mean, I'm, I'm a chronically terrible sleeper. I go to sleep really well, but I'll wake up for like three or four hours in the middle of the night. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to sort, that's a harder problem, but I'm trying to sort that out. So, I mean, in general, I live a pretty healthy life anyway, but it is really important to um, learn new things. Oh, and another thing is I just interviewed another scientist from U, uh, UC Irvine who's doing the 90 plus study. And I loved what she told me. She said they, they have a, a cohort of, um, you have to, in order to participate, you have to be 90 years or above. And they've studied these people for now a decade. And she said, social, um, uh, just socializing is so important. It was such an important part of brain health when you get to your 90s. And if you look at the science behind that, like when you and I have a conversation, right, you're going to say something to me and I have to intellectualize that. I have to think about it. And then I'm also thinking about my ways to respond to that. And we're constantly, so just talking to someone is hugely important, especially when you get older to have that social interaction. It really keeps your brain healthy. And now the 90 plus study at UC Irvine is proving that these people who have eight hours of social interaction a day are doing fabulously, you know? So something as simple as that um, really does make a, a difference to our brains. Well, I really appreciate that that insight, but then also your personal testimonies and, and perhaps maybe we'll have you on again and you can play the piano for us. Although I don't want to lose any listeners, so maybe not. But... <laughs> well, Deborah, thank you for your time and we appreciate having you on Dementia Matters. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I, I so appreciate it. And it's really an honor um, to be um, interviewed by our researchers. It's, it's the first. So thank you so much, Nathaniel. Please subscribe to Dementia Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate us on your favorite podcast app. 
It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Bashir Adin. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.